there! Hi! Do you know about Mack Weldon underwear? With a smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience, Mack Weldon underwear is definitely better than whatever you're currently wearing. Definitely. In addition to looking... Yes! ...and feeling great, Ooh. all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural ah. fibers that have built-in performance capabilities. Wow! So they work hard, too. They even have a line of silver underwear. Oh, my. And shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means they eliminate odor. Thank God. Yes! All that and, you ready for this? Tell me. They're shipped right to your door. Oh, my God! If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it because we don't want it. <laughs> and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Listen, I've been wearing underwear since I was a young boy. As long back as I can remember, I'm wearing underwear. And I love Mack Weldon underwear. My husband has also always worn underwear. Wonderful. And he loves, loves. I bet he does. Loves Mack Weldon. Says they're crazy awesome. They are crazy. They grip them right. So go to MackWeldon.com and get 20%. Whoa. 20%. Yeah. Off your purchase using the promo code BINGE. Warning, binge mode contains adult content. While watching Human Is, the third episode of Philip K. Dick's Electric Dreams, Mel and I coined the term Cranstass. Cranstass? To describe the sight of Brian Cranstass' bare cheeks rising and falling during an act of passionate coitus with Lady Crane from Game of Thrones. So, that's not your thing. Check out the watch. Whatever you're listening to, make sure you drink that Bravosi rum. It mm. is working for Lady Crane. And now, binge mode. Do you think you could reach God, Mr. Norton? Maybe when I was a kid, I did. In fact, I used to dream of breaking into whole new universes. There were still corners we hadn't been to back then. But now it's all chartered. There's no mystery anymore. Oh, but there is. People say we know everything. Everything is explained. Down to the molecules, the atoms, the quadrons, the minimons. Every dot accounted for. But here. Here there will always be mystery. Welcome to Binge Mode. Yes. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Tremendous website. Please check it out. Joining me today. Yes. Now that he's finished sampling the latest apple cake in Macon Heights. On the house. It's Ringer staff writer, your maester, Jason Concepcion. Hello. Mal, this cake is divine. And I didn't even make you, you know, pull the tea bag out of the trash. But before we inquire about the ginger cake, mm. quick reminder, ginger. every Thursday on Binge Mode Weekly, <laughs> we'll be diving deep into the topic that's obsessing us at the moment. And this spring, we'll be diving into Binge Mode Harry Potter. Dun, dun, yes. Dun. You'll be able to find both Weekly and Harry Potter on the same podcast feed. So stay subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guys, rate and review us if, if you, you don't like mind. It. Only five like stars. It. If you're thinking of anything else, Just don't bother. five. And... We'll be joining Bill Simmons and Chase Serrano for a binge mode slash rewatchables crossover live show event on Friday Night Lights and Varsity Blues at Largo at the Coronet in L.A. on Wednesday, January 24th. Check the Ringer Twitter feed and our own Twitter feeds for a link to buy tickets. And speaking of Twitter, please follow us on at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore. We'll be sure to tweet the latest schedule for the Alton train just for you. Texas forever, my dude. Ooh. On today's binge mode. Yeah. We're diving deep, deep <laughs> into Philip K. Dick's Electric mm. Dreams, Amazon's new 10-episode sci-fi anthology that dropped this past weekend, based on some of Dick's mm. myriad creations, short stories. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge. Yes. As always, we will be going deep on details from this new show and also from Dick's wider canon. The short dick and the wide dick. <laughs> We're all passengers here, so set your stopwatch, get ready to roll, 
because it's time to ride right into our own electric dream. Mal. Yeah. We're weaving dreams. Yep. We're artists, you and me. Yeah. So let's weave a dream of this season by taking a quick trip down our very own Kings Road right through the auto fac to offer a very brief refresher on the premises of these 10 episodes. Note, seems to be some confusion online about the yes. order of these episodes based on how various critics receive their screener packages, but we're sticking with the 1 through 10 order on the Amazon app. Number one, real life. Sarah, played by Anna Paquin, a policewoman, needs an escape from real life, so she logs into a virtual world for a, quote, vacation, where she becomes George, played by Terrence Howard, a game designer. But which of these is the real person? Good question. Yes. Number two. Autofac. Yeah. Jason, what if Amazon but too much? I've always wondered this. <laughs> a small community built by survivors of a nuclear holocaust are struggling to resist the depredations of a fully automated factory bent on sustaining consumerism and creep in a desolate world. Human is, number three. Mm. All hail the Cranstas! All hail the Cranstas! Colonel Silas, played by Brian Cranston, returns from a mission to Rexar 4. A changed man. Considerate, kind, and down to fuck. His <laughs> wife, Vera, Essie Davis, a.k.a. Lady Crane, wonders, yes. is he, in fact, the same dude? And if he isn't, does she even care? You saw the Cranstas, you I tell me. I've seen the Cranstas, and I will never be the same. <laughs> number four. Crazy Diamond. You have an alternate name for this. Blade Humper. <laughs> Ed, Steve Buscemi, yeah. works for a company that builds Jacks and Jills, synthetic humans. Mm. He is approached by one and becomes infatuated with her. A Jill agrees to help her try to extend her robo-life. Number five, the Hoodmaker. All hail the king in the uh, the dystopian future. Excuse me. <laughs> Agent Ross, played by Richard Madden, a.k.a. Rob Stark, the Rob the Stark of wolf. our hearts. The young wolf. And his telepathic partner, Honor, played by Holiday Granger, hunt down a criminal who distributes telepathy-proof hoods to the people of a dystopian future. Number six, Safe and Sound, a security versus freedom yarn set in a... Near future dystopia, brightly colored. Also, we just have to say, this is the episode Man. where we started really taking note of the number of redheads it's like, in Electric Dreams. It's like six consecutive ginger stories. There are a lot of redheads Incredible. on Electric Dreams. And yet, no work for my man, Rupert Grant. <laughs> Very tough. Well, he can be seen on Crackle. He's on Crackle. That's right. <laughs> Boot up your Roku's. That's right. Google Crackle to find out what Crackle is. <laughs> Seven, the father thing. Charlie, played by Jack Gore, discovers that his baseball-loving dad, played by Greg Kinnear, is an alien. Good Great shit. baseball joke. We'll talk good about that soon. A good baseball joke. Number eight, Impossible Planet. Yes. Norton, played by Jack Rayner. Give us a little bit of your Irish. Aim. That's all I can do is aim. <laughs> she wants to see Earth, aim. Works as a space tour guide. Yeah. One day, he and his... Partner Andrews, played by Benedict Wong, are approached by Irma Geraldine Chapman, nearly 350-year-old woman who has one dream, yes. desperate desire, seeing Earth. One problem, guys. They say that Earth has long since been destroyed. Um, they do say that. <laughs> the Commuter, number nine. Ed, played by Timothy Spall, works at a railroad station. One day he meets Linda played by Tuppence Middleton. I love these English names. Tuppence. It's incredible. Yeah. A commuter who asks for a ticket to Macon Heights, a town that does not exist. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Shouts to my Pettigrew heads out there. Yes. Are there Pettigrew heads? We'll find I out. I really... let's, let's check in with Jason <laughs> yes, Cahill after he finishes Prisoner of Azkaban. I hope let's not. Let's find out. Number 10, kill all others. Yes. Guys, you ever wonder how quickly a society can slip into fascism? Every, every morning. <laughs> Every time you boot up Twitter yes. and turn on the news, yeah. open your eyes. When Filbert, played sure. by Mel Rodriguez, dares to speak out against the violence and apathy he sees around him, he becomes a target for the rising tide of political extremism. This is also, by the way, the episode where you can try to fuck the ads. Yeah. I was into that part. That seemed neat. I've been dreaming about that my whole life. <laughs> what of commercials, but sexually active? <laughs> Next on Electric Dreams. <laughs> oh, 
Oh my god. Jason! Yeah! Doesn't this seem like somebody else's fucking fantasy? All the time. That might be because it is. Yeah. Philip K. Dick is one of the most prolific writers in the sci-fi genre or really any genre. And his work has spawned film and television adaptations for literally decades. Such is his impact on culture that before we can actually get into parsing the themes of Electric Dreams, we need to better understand the man whose work led to those themes. So we're going to go a little bit out of order today. Before we get to the pointy end, please assemble a conclave. Head to the Citadel, which I'm pretty sure is currently located on Rexar 4. Ah, Rexar 4. Teach us everything we need to know about Philip K. Dick, Fantasy Builder. The name Philip K. Dick is widely known as a brand, the author of tales that have become some of the most famous film and now television shows in science fiction. The man himself and the actual stories he wrote are a cipher. So let's take a brief look at PKD, the man and the adaptions which made him a brand name in science fiction. The New Yorker's Adam Gopnik, in his masterful 2007 essay on Dick's life and works titled Blows Against Empire, wrote, quote, so good. As an adult reader coming back to Dick, you start off in a state of renewed wonder and then find yourself thumbing ahead to see how much farther you are going to have to go. At the end of a dick marathon, you end up admiring every one of his conceits and not a single one of his sentences. That's brutal, but having read last night the stories that would become Impossible Planet in the computer, yeah. it is fair. It's fair. Harsh but fair. Harsh but fair. Personally, if I, I've always had trouble with dick. I remember reading uh, Do Androids Dream after uh, first seeing Blade Runner and being like, man, this kind of sucks, guys. Dick's stories, many of them written under the sway of titanic quantities of illicit substances, including PCP, speed, LSD, and sodium pentothal, a.k.a. truth serum. Verita serum? Yes. Oh, my goodness. Our Spartan fractured tales bursting with endless ideas, most of them unfleshed out. Dick's great talent was his ability to take wild premises, mind reading, humanoid androids, communication with the dead, victorious Nazi space colonies, among many others, and burnish them with the veneer of everyday banality. To quote Gopnik again, quote, the typical Dick novel is at once fantastically original in its ideas and dutifully realistic in charting their consequences. Dick and his twin sister Jane were born six weeks premature in 1928, the eve of the Great Depression in Chicago, Illinois. Is that why all these stories take place in Chicago? Yes. Oh. Write what you know, they say. Goodness. Okay. Jane died less than two months after their birth, and Dick's family eventually moved to San Francisco, the Bay Area. Dick coincidentally attended high school with fellow science fiction icon Ursula K. Le Guin. Where my Earthsea heads at! The two, however, did not know each other. In 1951, at the age of 23, Dick sold his first story, thus embarking on his full-time writing career. The 50s and 60s were a great, great, great time to be a genre writer, as there were numerous pulp outlets covering science fiction horror crime and fantasy that needed constant restocking of fresh content. The short stories adapted for Electric Dreams come from this early period of Dick's career when he applied his trade at magazines like Science Fiction Quarterly, Satellite Science Fiction, and Galaxy Science Fiction. In 1963, Dick won the Hugo Award given by sci-fi fans to the outstanding sci-fi or fantasy story of the preceding year for The Man in the High Castle, ushering in what is generally considered the peak of his career. The novel is set in 1962 in an America ruled by the victorious Axis powers of Japan and Nazi Germany. This was followed in 65 by The Three Stigmata of Palmer Eldritch, set in the 21st century. This story weaves together such disparate themes as space colonization, environmental collapse, drug-induced shared visions, and psychic powers. Unsurprisingly, John Lennon and... Harvard intellectual come acid guru Timothy Leary were interested in adapting it for the screen. 1968's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, surely Dick's most famous work, forms the basis for the 1982 Ridley Scott film Blade Runner. 1969's Ubik, about corporate employed psychics on the moon, is considered by many dickheads. Did you coin dickheads? I really Are hope you- I did. After I all these no, decades, let me just say, there's the no way. genius. The genius. Who coined dickheads? Aha! Dickheads. I'm proud to know you right Thank now. You. I truly am. Lev Grossman, author of The Magicians and a cultural critic for Time Magazine, named Ubik one of the 100 best novels of all time, all time, saying, Dick spins a deeply unsettling existential horror story, a nightmare you'll never be sure you've woken up from. In 1974, French producer-director Jean-Pierre Gorin hired Dick to write the screenplay for a potential film adaption. Dick, then fully under the sway of sodium pentothal and slipping into mental illness after a faded visit to the dentist, turned the script in a month later, but the film was never produced. This, as far as I can tell, is the only adaption of his stories that Dick actually worked on. In 1998, 
cryo-interactive entertainment released Philip K. Dick's Ubik, described as a tactical action strategy video game for the PlayStation and PC. And this marks, again, as far as I can tell, the first time Dick's name was used specifically as a marketing device. Flow My Tears, the policeman said, was published in 1974. And this is the only Dick novel to be nominated both for a Hugo and a Nebula. The Nebula is the sci-fi fantasy award that's chosen by fantasy writers and is generally considered the more prestigious of the two. It's about a genetically enhanced singer and reality star who finds himself in an alternate reality where he never existed. In 2004, Utopia Pictures and Television acquired the film rights to three Dick novels, Flow My Tears, along with Dick's tortured and personal opus Vallis, more on that in a bit, and Radio Free Albermuth. Then in 2009, the Halcyon Company, producers of Terminator Salvation, a film mostly famous for the secretly recorded audio clip of its star Christian Bale tearing into the movie's director of photography. Oh, <laughs> good for you! <laughs> Announced that he'd be producing Flow My Tears as its follow-up to Terminator Salvation. Still waiting on that one, guys. 1977's A Scanner Darkly is one part police procedural and one part William S. Burroughs' Drug John. Richard Linklater adapted the novel and the film of the same name starring Keanu Reeves, Winona Ryder, and Robert Downey Jr., among others, was released in 2006. It uses rotoscoping, an animation technique in which artists trace over actual film footage. And then Vallis, published in 1981. This is Dick's last great book, written under the weight of his crumbling sanity, and also his most autobiographical. VALIS is an acronym for Vast Active Living Intelligence System, a cosmological system stemming from his theory that, and I hope I get this right, that reality was, in fact, an illusion created by a fallen female god, the avatar of his infant twin sister, Jane, and that the material world and the passage of time had ceased to exist in the year 70 A.D. Gopnik, again from his New Yorker essay, describes Vallis thusly, quote, There are many books with unreliable narrators under the control of sane authors. This is the only one I know where a sane, reliable narrator, on the book's own terms, is under the control of a clearly crazy author. Dick died of a stroke in 1982 at the age of 53. His hallucinatory fractured stories, a reflection of his pulsating, barely contained mind, exist as a trenchant commentary in a time when we are increasingly asked to separate art from artists. Philip K. Dick's work shows us that such a thing is impossible. You think you could reach God, Mal? Maybe when I was a kid I did. In fact, I used to dream of breaking into whole new universes. There were still some corners we hadn't been to back then, but now it's all charted. There's no mystery anymore. Oh, but there is. And that's the question that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's cut right to the core of it by sticking it with the pointy end of the Father Things baseball bat. <laughs> Defining theme of this episode of Binge Mode Weekly is the power of home and human recollection. So before we get to Impossible Planet and The Commuter, which are the two episodes that we're going to primarily focus on today when discussing that theme... Let's just share some quick thoughts on the season at large. In Amazon's collection of the short stories that inspired these episodes, which very smart, very smart, by the way. Very, very smart on Amazon's part to do this. Because we were like, how are we going to track down all these stories? Yeah. How are we going to find all these? They're probably in all these different yeah, collections. And you know what? They're all right there. One click on the Kindle. There they are. Smart. <laughs> really good stuff. Jeff Bezos does it again. <laughs> and in addition to packaging all of these stories in very handy fashion. The other thing is that every one of the stories is introed by the person who adapted yep. it. So David Farr, who adapted Impossible Planet, said this in his intro. It runs just a few pages and is really just one simple idea. And then later he adds, it's one of Philip K. Dick's greatest gifts that even his simplest stories conjure timeless themes. This is something that really stood out to us yeah. as we were reading these stories. They are bare bones. Spartan. It is a nugget, a kernel, a concept. And the episodes flesh them out. That reality is not actually for the purposes of adaptation, a problem. It's a boon. It's yeah. why his work is so frequently adapted and is so ripe for adaptation. The ideas are there, but the details really aren't. So he is, in essence, providing templates. This was yeah. the way that you put it when we were discussing. He's creating templates. And those templates, those blueprints, plenty of room to build beyond them. So, like, I've been thinking about it almost like 
a model home. Mm. You know, if you were checking out a new neighborhood and you walked into the model home that they had built and they had staged. As I do. As one does. Yes. In one's Mack Weldon underwear. Sure. You look around you and you get, in essence, a sense of something. Mm. And that is enough to allow you to opt in or to force you to opt out. But if you decide that you want to move into that neighborhood, you don't ask to move into the model home. Right. You say, take those bones and build me my own house that I can make my own. I want to choose the color of the paint on the walls. I want to decide if it's carpet or hardwood. I want to knock that wall out and make my master room bigger. You know what? Let's actually build a deck on this puppy. Give me a swimming pool. There was only only a droplet of water before a little puddle. I want a pool. That's sort of how this feels. The show they're calling Amazon's answer to Black Mirror is very, very different than Black Mirror. Yes. The season of Electric Dreams hinges on themes that are core to the work that we just outlined. What does it mean to be human in a world that is increasingly less human? Body snatching. A lot of 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 loss of self. Surveillance. Brainwashing government control, fascism, the oppression of the masses. That last one is a key difference between Black Mirror and Electric Dreams. Dick's work is laced with cold wear paranoia, which makes absolute sense. But unlike Brooker's creation crafted now and informed by the fears and hopes informing our everyday lives, informed by the internet, Dick's work largely considers changes to society at large. It's more systemic and less personal. Right. This is also a series that is obsessed with twists. Obsessed. Twists after twist after twist. To the point that it's distracting. It is distracting because you keep, you're like, well, here it comes. Right. What am I looking for? What signs indicate that the twist is coming? What should I be focusing on? What is not as it seems? And the episodes that we are choosing to focus on today have a what is not as it seems element that is twist free. And that was part of why they appealed to us so much. Also, the other thing about Dick's work and these stories in particular is that basically by definition, largely because of the Cold War factor Jason was just mentioning, they need an update in order to resonate with a modern day audience. You know, these stories are decades old and the fears or the hopes either that informed Dick's writing in, you know, the 1950s, they don't feel urgent anymore. One of the episodes, Kill All Others, really hinges on... The terrifying notion that the entire populace could basically be brainwashed in an instance, the power of propaganda. Propaganda is everywhere in this show. And it was a really surreal experience to be watching that in the Trump age where every day, literally multiple times per day every day, a person in position of power says something and the masses actively rebel against it. So to watch a show where instantly everybody falls in line with the message, with the subliminal prompt, it just, even that, even an update version of it felt a little dated. And again, kind of by definition, some of these stories, some of these core ideas and the the people who are adapting these are leaning into the fact that the core idea is is what is appealing in the first place. There's risk there. There's risk in adapting older sci-fi stories that, are going to lack a certain level of invention and innovation that stories that are crafted today more naturally possess. So how do you solve for that? Right, that's the question. That's the question. That's the question. You solve for it by exploring the universal, you know, and the most, in our minds, the most successful episodes of Electric Dreams, the two that we're going to focus on today, Impossible Planet and The Commuter, really actually learn an important lesson from the best Black Mirror episodes, which is the stories are going to resonate most with people, not if you invent some terrifying new tech or make the factory an active participant in the world. It's going to be about the individuals. It's not going to be the ones that are about the oppressive regime. It's going to be about people making choices. And in this case, in these two episodes, those choices center on the ideas of Memory and home and belonging, wanting to belong and finally feeling like you can. So let's talk first about Impossible Planet. This is our favorite one. Our favorite one. Also, and I think quite interestingly, I'm not really sure what happens in this story. Yeah. And I think that actually burnishes its quality, not takes away from it. Norton and Andrews work for Astral Dreams. They're in the business of tourism. They, they operate what is essentially a tour boat spaceship 
where they take people and show them the wonders of the galaxy. But are they really the wonders of the galaxy? They have all these kind of technical tricks at their disposal, which they can use to make the nebulas and the galaxies that people are looking at seem more impressive. They don't really show people what is actually there. They use the aid of these technological tricks to kind of make people excited. They're con artists, essentially. Norton, his primary goal is, as a working stiff is to go to Primo Central because that's where his girlfriend, Barbara, played by Hang the DJ's Amy, looking great. Looking great. We only see her on a video screen, but she looks great. That's where she wants to go because it's, you know, obviously a more prime location. Her career can, can flourish there and all that. Then comes Irma, the old woman, and her helper, the Robant RB29. Irma is 342 years old. It's never explained why she is that old. Norton is not, does not seem perplexed by her being this old. Right. It's not totally clear if that's like really rare, very right. common. It's completely unclear. She is deaf and she harbors this desperate dream to see Earth before she dies. She wants to see North Carolina. A looming specter a mere two months away is the end of her life due to a heart condition. The Robant RB29 tells her, you know, she's near the end of her life. Andrews and Norton initially are like, no, Earth is destroyed. We can't go there. It's too dangerous. Why do you even want to go there? That's until they realize that Irma has a big suitcase full of cash. She's got that coin. Yeah, she's like, hey, you know, because apparently you can't just wire money in the space future. That's right. You're still carrying around briefcases (laughs) full of money. You got to bring in an art currency. (laughs) I like that idea, though, that she's maybe chosen not to have a bank account because she's like trying to go dark, live that Jack Bauer off the grid (laughs) life. She's going to go right. She's living on the dark Internet. (laughs) You won't be able to find me in our Irma has a lot of secrets. She needs to carry cash. And so Andrews and Norton are, you know, that con men inside them, the barely concealed criminal inside them are like, great, we can use the technological filters and stuff to kind of trick this lady and to think she's seeing Earth. And we take the money and we're good. So they decide to head to M43, which fits a lot of the details that fit Earth. It's the third planet in a solar system dominated by one sun. It has a moon. Norton begins to feel guilty about this. Yeah, he, so Andrews is really the ringleader of the con. Yeah, he's like, hey, he, man, come on. He doesn't feel bad at all. He's Not like, even a little bit. Give me that money. She's going to die, guys. <laughs> She's 342. Right. He's like watching his like creepy porn and slurping his noodles. And then yeah. someone comes in and offers him five years of salary for basically just a couple days of work. Sounds pretty good. Three days away. Hey, yeah. you know what? He doesn't see any problems. Norton, he agrees because again- he has this primo central barber driven life that he's trying to live. He's just gotten news that he's been rejected for yeah. the promotion, the bump, the, the relocation yet again. So he agrees, but he does have these misgivings about the deception from the jump because, you know, he's like a good guy. And his doubts really deepen as he begins to interact with Irma. They form a bond yeah. and she is drawn to him really, really forcefully. And we learn in time that it's because he looks exactly like exactly. her grandfather, Bill Gordon. And that is why Irma wants to get to Earth. She wants to go to Carolina. She wants to go to Elk Falls, where her grandparents swam naked. It's wonderful. As Not a stitch. fell in love before everything changed. And people didn't live like that anymore. Let me just say that didn't look like anything I'm familiar with in Carolina. You know, I got married in North Carolina. Did you? Yeah, did I, love, did those waterfalls? I love North Carolina. Did I got those... married in the Outer Banks. Um, you know, Irma, like Dick, is really in love with an idea. Yeah. The idea of Earth. And soon... As she and Norton bond, he comes to fall in love with this idea, too. Right. Why, he starts to ask himself, is he fighting for this thing that Barbara wants to give her this life on Primo Central when it's not what he wants? He does not want that. At all. At all. Why is he working so hard to sustain this connection with her when he is able to communicate with Irma in the most natural way, through touch, through looking into her eyes? And there's a a romantic quality to their time together. And again, he's like a dude in his 20s. Right. She's 342. And somehow it is not weird. Somehow that does not feel strange. It feels extremely sensual and gentle and like this force yeah. that is pulling them together and drawing them toward each other. And when he is near Irma, and this happens right when he opens the door and sees her in the first place, he starts seeing these flashes. Yeah. Bike, a red bike, riding. And are these memories? It doesn't matter. This is what you were starting to get at before. Do they actually find 
the real Earth? Is M43 really Earth in the end? You know, in the book, in the story, they discover a piece of metal. Right. They land on the planet M43. Yes. It is completely different. The story is completely different. The story is completely different, and it's somewhat like our tale. M43 is desolate, and it's got these bodies of water, but it's very weird. And so they discover a round disc. After, by the way, They've literally left Irma to die. Right. Norton's not really the sweet guy in the story. RB-29 has taken Irma and walks with her (laughs) into a body of water or something, some kind of chemical liquid, and they disappear. (laughs) (laughs) So they find this disc, and then they go back onto the ship, and later they look at it, and it says, E pluribus unum. Whoa, dude! It was Earth all along. It was Earth all along. I literally... You laughed out loud. I literally guffawed when I read this. here's my thing about this. So, obviously, this is somewhat of a staple in fantasy storytelling, you know. Dude, it was Earth. (laughs) Very Apesian. Yes, very Apesian. Battle Starian. I actually don't mind Mm. that trope. Sure. The way it was done (laughs) in the story is it just, like... None of the relationships and none of the depth is there. That's the issue. Irma is actually like sort of relegated to almost a caricature. Her her longing for Earth is not something that you relate to. Right. Like when you're watching this episode, you ache for her. It is unclear in the story why she wants to go there. Right. And she's almost presented as more of like a foolish, naive figure right. who doesn't understand the ways of the world right. and then is literally washed into the sea. Right. But... Is that true in the episode? Is it actually Earth? Are the flashes that Norton's seeing memories? Are they something else? The truth is that it doesn't matter. And, you know, we talk often about how in order to really buy into a great sci-fi story, you have to understand the rules. Right. But here, interestingly, we felt a little differently about it, as Jason was starting to say earlier. Somehow that mystery feels not only appropriate, but essential. Yeah. Because... The story almost exists, all of these episodes almost exist in this middle ground where you can't get away with saying, well, it was just 10 pages, so there wasn't the space to tell me more. And it's not long enough to say, all right, I spent two hours in a movie theater. I feel like I understand everything. It's 50 minutes. And the most important thing, especially for these two episodes that we liked the best, was to feel like an emotional resonance. And here in this moment in the story, human agency really rules the day. You know, Irma is distraught when they start pulling up into this system and it's this gaseous ruin. Why is it like this? This is not how it's supposed to be. You know, putting on the blue filter gives her some peace, but God, when they land, it's a hellscape. Where are the green fields that she saw in her mind? Where is this fresh, crystal clear water that she's been so desperate to find? Norton wants to give that to her. And that is what matters. It doesn't matter that it's not there. It matters that she wants it to be and that he wants to help her find it. Wrote down, he wants to take her to Carolina in their minds. And then I pulled some Carolina (laughs) James Taylor lyrics and Jason Cahill wrote, hot take, James Taylor is overrated. Jason Cahill is off this project. (laughs) I'll say this, James Taylor... (laughs) whose daughter went to Brown and I saw once at a cafe, has written like five great songs. That's right. That's all I'm saying. Five great songs. And like... Sweet Baby James. Right. And then like eight good songs. Mm -hmm. And then like 50... uh, They're fine songs. How many great songs has Jason Cahill written? That's that's a great point. (laughs) So in the intro that Farr wrote, One of the things he said was, the impossible planet deals with loss, the past, memory, and our terror that life on Earth is ephemeral and possibly doomed. It questions what it is to be human. Mm. Okay, so even the least successful episodes of this show do pose compelling questions. Like, there's something there in all of them that at least left us saying, you know what? There's a kernel of an interesting idea there. Yes. There's something there to talk about yes. and think about. You know, how quickly can the state poison the masses? What would it take to trick you into not knowing which life is actually real? What right. life is your own? You know, is fear always more powerful than hope and trust? Do aliens like baseball? The answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> but fuck, they're Yankee fans. Yeah. Damn it. Actually, that seems right to me. But <laughs> Impossible Planet and the Commuter, they really rise above that because yeah. they focus— fully on the question that Farr 
highlights there. You know, those episodes are less concerned with oppressive regimes and state-driven fears than with asking questions about what it means to be a person in the world and what choices you would make if you finally realized, finally, that you actually had the power to decide something about your life. Impossible Planet deals with a fundamental human question, which is, what is home? Irma wants to go to Earth as the very last thing she's going to do in her life because it's a return to a home that is more of an idea than an actual place. It doesn't even exist anymore, as far as anyone knows. It is legend. It's a photograph that she has. That's it. And so what is Earth? It's an idea at this point. It's a construct, which is a very Battlestarian trope. It represents something deeply human, even if humans no longer exist, no longer exist on Earth, that is. And Norton is choosing as well. He wants to give this to her, this passionate mission that she's on. He wants to help her with this because he just feels, he longs for a human connection with another person. He wants to not be chasing this kind of like, hamster wheel dream with a person who lives light years, as far as we know, away from him. He wants to be connected with another person in the universe. And and here, all of a sudden, against all odds, really, he finds it with this 342-year-old woman. And he wants to make a sacrifice for a person for a reason that doesn't involve a suitcase full of cash or a better position in the world or a better career or a shiny post in some other city that's better than the city he lives in. He wants something more real than that. And it's important to know that their relationship doesn't function this way in the story. And this is what we were talking about with oftentimes Dick's stories are lacking an element or a series of elements that could take them to the next level, lacking some bit of romance, a personal connection, a love story, something. And in this case, it's the romantic storyline between Norton and Irma. From Farr's intro, he says, when I adapted it, I added a strangely romantic element that isn't really in the story, but just leapt out of me. It really, by the way, softens it. It is not in any way in the story. (laughs) It's not there. No. It does not exist. There is no love story in this short story at all. He continues, that's the pleasure of of adaption. It's like digging in the original for what is inherent but not always expressed. In this case, lost love, lost paradise, and the possibility of it being regained. You know, part of the thing that I really loved about this episode, even though it's not fleshed out, doesn't make a lot of sense if you were to interrogate the laws or the rules at all, is that despite all those kind of like disparate elements, there's an authorial voice behind it that feels like, Here's an issue, a piece of something that's important to human beings that's trying to be worked out. It's trying to be expressed through this story. It's such a beautiful and ever appealing idea. A story will always work if that word from that far quote that you just read is in there. Possibility. These people are stretched across the universe to the point where Norton no longer feels that there's any mystery in the world, right? He says... Now it's all charted. There's no mystery anymore. And Irma's response to him in that moment is one of the most beautiful moments in the entire series. Now it's all charted. There's no mystery anymore. (laughs) It's so touching. She just grabs her chest. You know, she points at her heart and she's saying, here, here there will always be mystery. Your heart, your soul, your mind as a human being who has the chance to go to Primo Central and you've got a hot girlfriend and you're trying to get a better job. and For him to have that moment where he realizes none of that matters. You know, there's also that agonizing moment where he he dials up Barbara. Yeah. And he asks her, do you ever dream about me, Barbara? Say Barbara in an Irish accent. Barbara, (laughs) do you ever dream about me? And she doesn't respond. He says, you don't, do you? And pauses for a minute and says, that's okay. I don't dream about you either. Not anymore. That is so gutting. And... That's part of why he makes this choice. He's literally just going through the motions in his life, checking the boxes that he thinks he's supposed to check, traveling the patterns that he thinks he's supposed to travel. And this, for the first time, allows him to consider another course. What if home isn't just what they're telling me? Right. What if home is what I choose to make it? That's beautiful. Let's talk about another episode that really beautifully explored the idea of choice and possibility and what home really means. The Commuter, not to be confused with the Liam Neeson film of the same name that also came out this past weekend. This is from Jack Thorne, Jack Cursed Child Thorne's Mm -hmm. intro in the Kindle edition. Yeah. Did he mention anything about the trolley witch? (laughs) (laughs) 
We'll take this up with him later. Quote, what I most admire about him and what drew me to the commuter, this is Dick he's talking about, is that he always finds the ordinary in the extraordinary. None of his characters are superheroes in waiting. Rather, they are ordinary Joes who have been given a glance through a window and responded accordingly. They don't suddenly change who they are, but as the world transforms, so they transform within it. And he continues, I spent the last year immersed in this story, and there are still questions I'm having to ask about as I read it. What? We loved that. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I've, I enjoyed about this reread, we read the two short stories, that the source of the episodes that we're focusing on, is the way... <laughs> The intros kind of skirt around basically saying, hey, there's not a lot of detail in this right. story. I literally don't understand what's <laughs> I, happening, so I got to make it up for yeah. myself. Hey, guys, uh, I don't know what's going on here. I've so, been thinking about this 10-page story for the last year, <laughs> and I've devoted a month and change to each page, and right. I still don't understand what's happening here. Now, what the story kind of deals with and what the episode really deals with is this kind of fundamental question that, Everybody's thought about it at some point or another. What would you do if you could change some aspect of your life? What if you could erase some detail or opt in or out of a reality in total? What if you could go somewhere else, some other utopian world that's that's completely different and hopefully a lot better than the one that we live in? This is rich storytelling history, A Christmas Carol, It's a Wonderful Life, Heaven Kuwait. You can go on and on about the stories that use this device. Life is full of regret and pain and roads not taken and some of the best sci-fi stories and fantasy stories, or at least the ones that really speak to us, use technology in a way that's so advanced that it is essentially magic to bridge this kind of chasm of human longing. Yes. In Ed's case, the railroad worker, his longing centers on his relationship with his troubled son, Sam. Sam is violent, struggling against mental illness, seemingly beyond the help of his parents, but certainly not beyond their love. And Ed really loves his son. And what makes the commuter so affecting is, is it brings a deeply personal question out of the dark and into the light. What if you could erase a person completely out of your life? We should say, by the way, that this question yes. is not explored. Not at all. In the story. Not in the short bit. story. Right. It is, if anything, the opposite, yeah. which is that also the main character is different. Ed Jacobson is in the story, but it's a different character who ultimately pursues the path to make on Heights, learns about this world, and then has his reality right. back in what he would consider his traditional realm altered. All of a sudden, at the end, when he comes back, he has a kid that he did not have before. So technically, yes, a child plays a role, right. but the emotional resonance of this episode hinges fully on Ed having to deliberate internally and to weigh those factors. What do I want? Right. What is home to me? Right. Is home that chaos right. that's this, waiting for me every day? This deeply imperfect life that I have that's bad and makes me feel bad most of the time. Is home everything right. that is a part of your daily reality, the good and the bad? And if you could choose right. to make it something else, but you knew, you knew that you had made that choice, could you ever live with it? That is extremely compelling. And the fact that yeah. that is not in the, <laughs> not, not in the story. Let me add again. There's a fear. There's, a, there's a terror. Like, oh, things around me are changing. Right. Right. What do I do? How will that change impact my life? But there is not this pivot point yeah. where your decision essentially ends up as a judgment and a ruling right. on your entire life. So, you know, how does that even get into this situation? He becomes desperate to discover what is happening because all of a sudden, right. there's this weird thing happening at work, guys, and not just having to reuse the tea bags from the trash. Right. Great detail, by the way. It is. It's a, it's that's a, a great storytelling detail. It's an instant cue to yeah. you as the viewer that this guy's life sucks. Things are not great. He is not living like a blissful existence where everything is perfect and he would never actually have to consider whether to give up a person he loves to improve his circumstances. All of a sudden, someone's asking for a ticket, right, to this place that doesn't exist. And he becomes obsessed. I found myself wondering, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. What would you have done if that had been you? Do you get on that train? Do you try to solve that mystery? Like, what does that say about you as a person? Is it that, and part of what I think is appealing about, and this does go back to Dick's story, the choice to make this character a person who works at a train station to make the trains this vessel, this vehicle. Yeah. It's the idea that, like, 
it's a portal. Yeah. It's literally a path into a different reality if you want it to be. And so to be the person who every day sits there and hands tickets out to other people and helps other people take a journey to point from point A to point B, helps them find a different thing in their lives. And you never get to go. You never get to board. And so it's not just the mystery oh, I need to understand this. This right. doesn't, something, I just can't shake this. Something doesn't feel right. That place doesn't exist. It's not on my computer. It's not on this map. You're telling me it's real and it isn't. And also you just vanished in front of me. What right. the fuck is happening? It's on some level, like a thirst for adventure. Yeah, I mean, I, listen, if someone came up to me and wanted to buy a ticket to a place that does not exist, first of all, I'd be like, you're crazy, get out of here. Like if you deal with the public every day, at a certain point in time, you will deal with people who are either aggressive or seem off in some kind of way, and you'd probably be dismissive. But if then they disappear in front of you and a train shows up right. that doesn't exist, yeah, I'm getting on the train. Let's find out. I need to find out about this. Let's find out. And so what does he find? So he goes to Macon Heights. He discovers this place. He gets on the train. He sees a man just jump off the train in the middle of a field. He follows him. The homie from Preacher. The homie from Preacher. Who had just clogged up the toilet at the train station like a real dick. <laughs> yeah. Uh, needs plunging. Whatever he says there after he like, is flushing it for five years. So they, he arrives at this town where everything is absolutely idyllic. You know, he goes to a cafe and the waitress is absolutely pleasant to him, gives him a slice of pie for nothing. There's children laughing in the streets, young couples running to and fro. Just got engaged. We just got engaged. So Ed finds himself at, at one point, this is a great scene, finds himself at one point sitting on a park bench watching children at play. And Linda, the woman who he followed to Macon Heights, whose disappearance and, and wanting to buy the ticket first alerted him to the existence of Macon Heights, arrives and she says, a man sits alone watching children at play in another world that I'd be worried. Darkness and negativity of any kind doesn't even exist in Macon Heights to the point that you can be sitting and doing something and only the most innocent explanation possible could be thought of what you're doing. Right. But as with any utopian setup in any story ever, yes, <laughs> ever, 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 things are not what they seem. Of course, perfection always comes with some cost. Ed returns home after his journey to Macon Heights to find that his son, Sam, his troubled son, is gone. In fact, never existed. But his wife is making a chicken pie. Delicious. <laughs> so there's that. So it's like, actually, wait a second. This right. is actually everything I've ever dreamed about deep within my deepest, darkest fantasies, where that place where I'm like, man, I wish we never had this kid. Right. Which you can never say to anyone, here it is given to you. So now what do you do with that? What do you do? Ed finds actually that he regrets this. He needs to find out what happens to his son. He discovers what the secret of Macon Heights is. The secret of Macon Heights is that it is populated by people who, like him, have some pain, some trouble in their life that they are running from. Some of them quite terrible. And they come to Macon Heights to kind of live in this utopian loop of a place where trouble can never reach them. And Ed is, instead of being hypnotized by this, he's haunted by it. His love for his son really overcomes all this. Like Sam is violent, he's troubled, and Linda suggests that he's, he's going to go to jail and do, quote, terrible things. But Ed is not going to run. He's not going to live in the dream anymore. Sam is his boy, and he's the boy that he and his wife Mary made with their love. Linda says, you'll all be so unhappy. And he's like, then that's how it shall be, which is, that is like a Incredible. That's a line. It's an incredible moment. And it's so powerful because you are watching a person literally choose a more painful, less pleasant life. Right. Why? Also, how? Yeah. Again, much like Impossible Planet, there's a lot of specificity here that's yeah. absent. You know, how is it that Ed suddenly finds himself watching these home videos that right. allow him to remember that he had a son before right. he went to Macon Heights. You know, how do the physics of this world work in the story? It's when he's watching the, the man get off the train for the first time and he describes him as, you know, suddenly he's a foot off the ground and then he's three feet off the ground. In the show, we see what we think are, are fully built, actual, like tangible structures. And then all of a sudden we'll see them from a different angle. It's just yeah. a facade. Or the way that Linda walks through her insurance office right. and suddenly there are literally, Ed and, and Linda are operating operating on different planes of existence. How many of the people who are there are like Ed, who have ex escaped some horror in their lives? How many people are constructs of the universe? 
what's up with Linda? Well, she's the daughter right. of the guy who tried to make Macon Heights a real town in the first place. You know, this was supposed to actually be a place. How did she make it what it is? Is it magic? Is it tech? Is right. it code? We don't ever find out. And in a way, that's for the better. I agree. And I think Dick didn't know either. This is from the story. So I'm going to quote from the story now. This is after the character that is then becomes Ed in the episode discovers what Macon Heights was and is, which is a town that was supposed to be built but wasn't. Quote, but now the forgotten town was coming into existence seven years later, the town and an undetermined slice of reality along with it. Why? Has something changed in the past? Had an alteration occurred in some past continuum? That seemed like the explanation. It's a, he doesn't know. He doesn't know. Right. Dick is like, yeah, I don't know. The town shows up, it disappears, and then it's here. I don't know. Right. It's like he's sort of doing the thing where a character on a TV show acts as audience avatar right. by asking the questions, except usually then another character will provide <laughs> right. the yes. answers. <laughs> but ultimately, what makes this so compelling is that the nature of the choice right. hinges on the idea of memory and recollection and emotional attachment to the idea of home and the beats that make up your life. And those are not always pleasant. You know, it's worth considering it is a world or a slice of a world that allows you to eliminate your problems literally by stripping them out of existence. Is that actually solving your problems? Is that bringing you peace? That's like, what is the nature of humanity? If you're not actually confronting and grappling with your struggles, how can you ever move beyond them? And one of the things that's more present in the in the short story than in the episode, but that's also pertinent in here, is you're opting into something you can't control. Right. And as a human being, you're always going to feel more comfortable making the choice than right. letting somebody else control your reality. Agency is very important. You show up. Yep. You get back home. Something's different. Well, what's going to be different tomorrow? Right. What's different the next time? How many things around you will suddenly cease to exist or pop into existence? And at what point does the life that you recognize and the life that you're trying to improve cease to be your life at all? Jason? Yes? Don't you think it's time you tell me your real name? It's Dick. (laughs) I'm afraid you wouldn't be able to pronounce it. Vera and Silas weren't the only ones with uh, that particular problem. The Electric Dreams cast is astonishingly star-studded. Big names. Unbelievable cast, episode by episode. So, let's ask Andrews and Norton to fly us to the sept so that we can bathe in the light of the seven by sharing seven of our favorite guest spots in this star sun season. Doesn't mean they're the best. Yeah. Doesn't mean they're everyone else's favorites. favorites. Just our favorites, yeah. guys. Still lightning round style. I'll go first. Number one, the human is trio. Silas. Played by Brian Cranston, yes. a.k.a. Walter White from Breaking Bad, happy 10-year anniversary, Cranstass. What a wonderful Cranstass. Amazing. You know, we saw, always saw Walter in the tidy whiteies. Yes. But to get the full Cranstass here. Lurking I mean, under those. My goodness. Also, the memes. The Cranston <laughs> memes from this episode. I would say that, you know... If we're being transparent with our listeners, which we always like to do, yes, our prep course. for this episode was like 5% work and 95% slacking and texting each other right. screenshots of Cranstas peeking through the door. Yeah, there's a, <laughs> there's a moment when Cranstas is observing Lady Crane undressing, and he's quite allured by this, and he's peeking. He can't believe what he's seeing, and then he bursts in. And the Cranstas appears. and the, they... the best part is like the shift. So you only see one eye, like one eye and like a sliver of nose. And then he moves. So you get the same <laughs> right. view, but the other eye. Because that other eye must see too. <laughs> it's truly incredible. Yeah. Also, we should note executive producer yes. of Electric Dreams. So shouts to you, Cranstas. But good job. But he was yes. not alone in this episode, as we've noted many times. Vera, played by Essie Davis, a.k.a. Lady Crane, a.k.a. Arya's homie yes, from right. Game of Thrones. And, and, and General Olin, Liam Cunningham himself, Sir Davos, <laughs> the Onion Knight. I saw you staring at a kind heart. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking Number two. of Thrones. Yeah, I love Thrones. Number two. Hey, <laughs> how about the King in the North? Beautiful. Richard Madden. The Young Wolf. He plays Agent Ross. Forever young. Forever young. <laughs> plays Agent Ross, the hoodmaker, and uh, seeing Richard Madden in this episode had us wondering, why is this dude not a bigger star? It's confounding to me because, and I don't want to objectify people. Sure. He is so handsome. It's like honestly distracting. Yeah. 
like I had to pause the episode. Actually, again, in the interest of full disclosure, Adam, my husband, yes. paused the episode and turned to me and said, can you finally admit that you're wrong? Because we have a long-running feud where I have insisted. I'm team Kit. And he was always, wow. always like, you're crazy. Rob is so much better looking than John. And I tried to explain it's about more mm-hmm. than just the physicality. I see. And I ride for John. John's my dude. Yeah. Isaac's telling us we're running along on time, but I'd like to talk about Rob and John for another 60 Forever minutes young. here. Forever young. He had, you know, forever young, but like a little, little, little gray, little gray wind. So little gray wind in his So hair. distinguished. I'll never great. forget the way he watched as his love sawed a foot. Anyway. I wonder if Agent Ross likes foot sars too. That episode, The Hoodmaker, is a good example of one where like the twist is really a detriment to what could have yes. been a more successful hour of television because in the end... We're not actually sure what outcome we're supposed to be rooting for in there. You know, do we want the fire to consume him? Do we want honor to believe that he's reformed and that he can be trusted? Very unclear. Yeah. More redheads also. Number three, Timothy Spall, a.k.a. Peter Pettigrew from Harry Potter. Wormtail. Ed Jacobson in The Commuter. Really just great to see Pettigrew back on our screens. He's... Well, ugh, I just keep worrying about spoiling things for Cahill. It's actually yeah. like really a fucking inhibition. Can you finish these books already? Anyway, that was fun. And also he's on a train a lot, which made me think of the Hogwarts Express. That's right. Number four, what do you got? Number four, more tyranny, a.k.a. Helen from The Affair Love with it. some awesome neck tats. A lot of neck tats. More tyranny with neck tats. A lot of tats in this series. A and lot of tats. Crazy stuff. And also Irene from Safe and Sound. And from ER. Number five. Jack Gore. You might be asking yourself who Jack Gore is. That's right. Watch some billions, my dudes. Metallica sound. (laughs) Hand me some Mixer's bourbon and let's talk about Jack Gore. We're going to see Metallica tonight. Bobby Axe Axelrod's youngest son, a.k.a. Charlie from The Father Thing. The whole entire episode, I just kept thinking... I can't believe they're making this many baseball jokes. This is amazing. And that's Axe's kid. Why isn't everyone in this episode wearing a Henley? Also wears wags. And has he built up a tolerance to body sushi yet? Can't wait for Billions to come back. Number six, the real life dynamic duo. George, played by Terrence Howard, who you know from Crash and Empire. Who you know from Empire. Let's forget about Crash. (laughs) Forever. And Sarah, played by Anna Paquin, you know, from True Blood. And of course, is Rogue in the X-Men. Bonus shouts to Sam Witwer, a.k.a. Aiden, from Being Human. I love Being Human. I know you do. I miss that show. Finally, number seven, Steve Buscemi. Nucky from Boardwalk Empire. Nuck. Fargo, Reservoir Dogs. You've seen him in a million things. He played Ed in Crazy Diamond, one of the least memorable episodes of the entire series, though I did enjoy watching them attempt to bury a sprouting potato in the ground. Blade Humper. Mal, we're going on a trip. A voyage. A voyage? Where? Out there, somewhere. The high seas. El Dorado. The award ceremony for this week's winner. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or idea that compelled us the most. And this week, awarding our champion's purse. Two kilo positive. All that cash. <laughs> Two. <laughs> Norton and Irma from Impossible Planet. Sure, guys. If you want to harp on the literal day, probably, we think, maybe, definitely, we're not sure, but probably died from toxic fumes. Extremely unclear. <laughs> but that's okay yes. if that's what happened because they found something much more important than clean air. Peace. Peace, love, a swimming hole where they could swim naked, a beautiful bicycle, all that stuff. Listen, when you're ditching Georgina Campbell and still getting the W... You're doing something good, guys. You're doing some shit. I would just also like to say that the outfits that Mm -hmm. they wear, the dress that Irma has been holding on to, her grandmother's dress, and the shirt-suspender-pants combo that she gives to Norton, Bill Gordon's old garb. I have seen these exact outfits on Sunset Junction in Silver Lake. This is like, I love when these shows that we're watching recently suddenly are just like, oh, that's just a Los Feliz hipster. Like hey, in episode two of get season me a two Los of The Feliz Crown, bartender. when Philip all of a sudden has like a huge beard and is clearly wearing a sweater that he bought in Echo Park. <laughs> Let us have a, a beard growing competition, lads. Are you ready? I loved What's it. fun? I loved it. It was fun. It yeah. was fun. Norton has a little bit of a beard too. Sure. He looks great. He, he looks great. They Aim. all look great. Everyone looks great. Aim. Aim. <laughs> 
these two, you know, we've talked about them a lot, so we'll keep it pretty tight here. But they really, they did bring real heart and humanity to a season that was heavy on darker narratives. And in, in doing that, they offered a reminder that no matter how big the universe gets, no matter how hard you're trying to get to Primo Central, a personal connection is always going to matter and resonate most. Yes! And again, because that personal connection is not present in the short story on which this episode is based, it's all the more of an achievement and a testament to the showrunner's ability to transcend their material in a way that is pretty cool. Yeah. All right, guys. We dreamt of you. Deep in our hearts. We think maybe you dreamt of us, too. Yes. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you are as excited as we are for Binge Mode Harry Potter this spring, that you'll be joining us at Largo. Yes. On January 24th for the Binge Mode Rewatchables High School Football Mashup Live Event. (gasps) One day, we will all be tested. (laughs) And that you will join us next Thursday for the next installment of Binge Mode Weekly. Until then, contemplate something for us. Yeah. If half of modern baseball players bat left-handed, yes. why the fuck isn't first base the hot corner too? Wow, great question. Personally, if I, I've always had trouble with Dick. I remember reading... Uh, <laughs> Have you had trouble with Dick, as I have? Personally, I've always had trouble with Dick. Today's podcast was brought to you by Mac Weldon. Ooh. With smart design, premium fabrics, and a simple shopping experience, Mac Weldon underwear is definitely, definitely, definitely no better than whatever you're wearing currently. In addition to looking and feeling great, all Mack Weldon products are crafted with natural fibers mm. that have built-in performance capabilities Ooh. to swaddle that Philip K. Dick. <laughs> they work hard, too. They even have a line of silver underwear. Whoa! And, and... Killing the werewolf with that underwear. <laughs> and shirts that are naturally antimicrobial, which means, this is important, Yeah. they eliminate odors. Ooh. No one wants a stinky dude. No, it smells great. All that, let's ship right to your door. If you don't like your first pair, you can keep it. Wow, amazing. Because no one wants your used underwear, silver amazing. or not. And... And yes. not only can you keep it, Mac Weldon will still refund you no questions asked. Listen, I've been wearing underwear for all my life. And I love Mac Weldon underwear. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off your purchase using the code BINGE. BINGE! 